Hi, good day. This is the 31st edition of Free City Radio podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph in Montreal. Um, we're getting into March now, so um, I'm keeping it going, uh, sharing interviews with you uh, every week on Tuesday. Uh, it is the 2nd of March today. Um, I have some good interviews uh, to share with you on the program today. We are going to first start with another interview within the series that I've been working on uh, in collaboration with the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute. I spoke with Jamie Neen, uh, who is uh, one of the coordinators at Mining Watch Canada. This is an organization, I think, uh, that does very important work in regards to documenting and detailing the activities of Canadian mining companies globally. Uh, looking at both environmental and human rights uh, injustices connected to Canadian mining companies. Uh, mining Watch Canada, again, is the name of the organization. What I think is very important about this, this project is it, it gives details and specifics about specific mines in specific places and specific legal cases that are going forward. So we'll hear about um, a court case around uh, violence related to the imposition of a mine in Guatemala. We'll also uh, look at some other examples, but also more generally talk about the push uh, that is taking place through Mining Watch Canada, but also through other organizations to ensure that there is a process of accountability that can be implemented within Canada um, in regards to mining corporations um, and their practices, so a legal process. Without further ado, uh, we'll get right into it. Uh, this is Jamie Neen from Mining Watch Canada here on Free City Radio. Yeah, Mining Watch is, is interesting because it's it's sort of got set up as a coalition of different organizations, all concerned about mining in Canada, but also, as you say, Canadian mining activities internationally. Um, and really, it was it was through the 1990s that we saw the mining, the Canadian mining industry expanding globally as part of the uh, globalization, the economic globalization that was going on, uh, structural adjustment programs being implemented through the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund and, and the um, imposition of conditions on countries all around the world that would facilitate the access of foreign direct investment, in this case, Canadian mining companies, to the natural resources of those countries. And so we, we saw the Canadian government actively involved, along with the international financial institutions, in opening up those economies, um, opening up those spaces for investment and exploitation. Um, it's, you know, you can see it as a real sort of neo-colonial push. And, um, and of course, the same dynamic has long been established within Canada, where you know, remote areas and indigenous territories are again treated as you know zones of of extraction for you know um, for the creation of wealth for the people who already have it. <laughs> and that's and that's sort of the the dynamic that we got involved in was this you know this sort of shift and 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 I think even an increasing sort of rapaciousness on the part of the industry that was seeing, you know, increased potential for profits. And 
increased resistance from communities both in Canada and around the world to those impositions and, you know, resistance to being relocated and, and dispossessed of their own, their own territories, their own water supplies, their own livelihoods. And, and so there were, you know, a um, range of organizations that came together to, to create Mining Watch. And, you know, um, for better or worse, we've been at it ever since. And I, you know, I, we can talk about, things that have changed and things that have not changed, but the, the overall dynamic, I think, is still very much in place. And, you know, that's still what we're looking at. So when we talk about zones of extraction and the operations of Canadian mining companies, um, I would just, if you could just highlight for us the fact that the operations of, you know, Barrick Gold, for example, um, or many others, uh, when operating globally, just underline and, and share with us, uh, for people who might not be familiar, the fact that the Canadian government actually gives the green light for these corporations to have the capacity to operate internationally. And often, as I understand, Canadian embassies abroad are actually often involved in some ways in negotiating access for Canadian mining companies. Yeah, very much, very much so. The the reality is that Canada doesn't just allow Canadian mining companies to operate internationally with full impunity. It supports and encourages them. So you know we have um, we have a lot of mechanisms in place to support Canadian corporations and, and specifically mining companies to have access to capital in Toronto and, and Vancouver and Montreal, you know, through the Toronto stock exchange, through the venture exchange, there's, there's, you know, really poor regulation of that. Um, and there are no restrictions. So there's no, the, the only law that applies to Canadian companies operating internationally is the anti-corruption law, the, the, uh, uh, corruption of uh, foreign public officials law, which which is really, uh, you know, aside from flagship cases like SNC-Lavalin, which isn't even going very well, it's really not enforced at all. And, you know, so there's there's no control whatsoever. There's no, you know, there's no sense of, um, unlike when foreign companies want to buy major projects in Canada or buy into uh, mining companies in Canada, they, they have to go through the Foreign Investment Review Agency. Um, but when Canadian companies operate internationally, they do it with the, the blessing and support of the Canadian government. And as you say, that, that happens um, as much through Canadian embassies and the, the Trade Commissioner Service, as it's called, as it does politically and and even economically through agencies like Export Development Canada that provide billions in support to mining companies. Um, we've got we've done some work on access to information on specific cases, um, you know. So there's as well as what's on the public record, showing that Canadian embassies are not only lobbying and pressuring government officials uh, and and getting involved in even in legislative processes in other countries to rewrite their environmental laws, their labor laws, uh, their mining laws and, and regulations to make it easier for Canadian companies to operate. But also um, they, like really hands-on sometimes, like even helping companies 
submit their their applications for blasting permits really trivial things that you think you know if you can't apply for your own permits in a country like mexico what are you even doing there um but that's that's the level of sort of hand holding that that canada the canadian government is willing to extend so everything from that all the way to meeting with ministers and presidents and prime ministers to ensure that they understand the importance of um, developing legislation that, that um, facilitates Canadian mining interests. Wow. Well, when we think just on a, on a physical level about mining, um, there's a lot of um, violence that can be involved in ter- You mentioned blasting permits, um, but the total transformation of landscapes. Um, and that often involves the displacement of, of not just the land and the environment, but also of communities that um, have basically uh, depended and interacted with those territories for um, generations, uh, often indigenous communities. Um, if you could talk a bit about maybe highlight a few examples that come to your mind um, which are of concern for Mining Watch Canada today uh, that really exemplify that reality. Yeah, I mean there there are there are lots of examples and and one of the one of the problems is that a lot of that kind of pressure and violence doesn't make the news. And so you know the um, Justice and Corporate Accountability Project at Osgoode Hall in Toronto did a, a survey, and they they you know they looked at hundreds of cases in dozens of countries across Latin America of um, murder and um, and assault that were you know then they basically kind of like what Global Witness has been doing, looking at how dangerous it is for. Uh, human rights defenders and, and environmental defenders in their own communities getting killed. And the problem with that is that, you know, there's a layer of violence that doesn't necessarily include getting killed. So people are intimidated, they're attacked, they're threatened, they're, um, they're you know, assaulted shot injured you know raped and so on um and that that doesn't that doesn't rise to that doesn't get documented the same way and so there are cases you know we've been following the 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 case in in guatemala of um the the elastor mine the the um at one point belonged to hud bay um and while hud bay was running it. The Canadian company was running it. Um, there was a, a series of, of land invasions and attacks, um, rapes and murders, and the victims. Several of those families are in Toronto, uh, suing. They're suing in Toronto. They're suing HUD Bay management, and you know, that's what more than twelve years later still trying to get some kind of recognition and, and justice for what happened. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the women who were raped and gang raped, the, the, uh, the men who were attacked with machetes and shot, um, and, the, and the survivors of, of the, or the, the family of, of the one man who was killed, 
are trying to sue the management of the company who um, it is alleged knew what was going on and either did nothing to prevent it or actually arranged and encouraged it. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's, it's not criminal uh, in Canadian law. This is a civil suit. They're just being sued for negligence. Wow. Yeah. So there's, you know, um, there actually are criminal proceedings going on in Guatemala very slowly and, and actually perhaps more productively than, than you might expect <laughs> given what we know about justice in Guatemala. But, you know, um, we're also told by the lawyers here that the, the documentation that's coming out shows very clearly that the company knew exactly what was going on. They, they, they can't claim that this was being done by the security people on their own or that it was kind of, Oh, these things happen locally. They, they knew exactly what was going on. Can you, can you just uh, say again, the name of that company and I'm sure it's up on your, your mining watch website. So if you could just say the name of the company and, um, yeah, it's HUD Bay. So originally it was Hudson Bay Mining and Smelting. Started in uh, Thompson and Flin Flon in Manitoba and, and is now a, a global actor uh, with some problems that we've been working on in places like Peru as well. Yeah, okay. Um, so uh, just in terms of action, right? Because there has been some understanding that Canadian mining companies globally are uh, in conducting um, operations in ways that do uh, create displacement and are systemically violating human rights. I mean, I've talked with friends in the Philippines, for example, mm -hmm. who've talked about Canadian mining companies, um, Oceana, I believe, uh, yeah, exactly. in Vancouver, um, and also uh, in West Africa, um, in Mali, Niger, and Guinea. Um, but so the work that you're doing at Mining Watch Canada is, is so important for a, a number of reasons. I mean, the documentation, but also the, the mechanisms of taking action, right? Like legally speaking within Canada to try to support cases, you know, like the one that you mentioned for HUD Bay uh, operating in Guatemala. But these processes, can you, can you talk, Jamie, a bit about the importance of trying to create some sort of process of accountability for both environmental destruction related to mining companies globally, Canadian mining companies, and also human rights violations, because um, that's not happening through the Canadian government. No, exactly. And, you know, we've been pressuring the Canadian government for at least 15 years to try and create some mechanism of accountability you know, and, and without even getting into things like criminal liability or, um, you know, actual restrictions on what companies can do, although I have some ideas about that, um, but just trying to build in some kind of accountability because, you know, what we, what we really need to do is try and change that, that systemic support, right? and turn it into a, a much more um, fair and just system. We can keep, you know, and, and, and we will keep supporting individual cases and, you know, documenting them and publicizing them and, and campaigning for justice on, you know, whatever the case is and, and the extent that 
as a small organization, we can have an impact doing that. But, you know, we will keep doing that forever unless we change the system that's creating the, those abuses. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, working with, with a lot of other organizations um, through the Canadian Network on Corporate Accountability, basically for the last 10 years, we've been pushing for um, an investigative mechanism. So like an, an ombudsperson, someone, an office that would be able to investigate cases that were brought forward and look at, you know, verify what was going on. And if not impose restrictions and reparations directly, at least, you know, push the government and, and show the government where it needed to go. Um, you know, and, and you know, sort of, as I said before, they, the bare minimum of that would be to withdraw the active support of companies that were behaving badly. Yeah. or were involved in abuses in, in any way, really. So, you know, uh, almost two years ago now, we had an announcement from the, the Trudeau government that they, they and, and this was actually something that had, they'd been campaigning on um, when, when, they, when they first came to power. This was a campaign promise. And they said, yes, we will create an ombudsman's office and it will have the power to investigate and it will... You know, it will recommend to the government on things like support from Export Development Canada, on um, political support for specific mining companies, and those things could be withdrawn. Yeah. So we're not going to necessarily impose any sanctions on anybody, but at least we would stop supporting the bad actors. Um, you know, and, and again... The idea is that would happen case by case. So it's still not really a system, a systemic change. But if that happens a few times, and, and I know that the industry is very sensitive to this, then they start paying attention. They start behaving yeah. differently. They start actually, you know, paying more attention to the law and the rules where they're operating. Um, and they, you know, we, we get, uh, the law, the law firms that work with these companies put out these newsletters and they sort of, they're looking at the court cases like the ones we were talking about before. They're also looking at this ombudsman process and saying, you know, people could get caught and it could be really nasty and could frighten investors and, and company management might actually have to uh, pay attention and not get involved in, you know, these kinds of abuses. So, sure. That's the theory. And so they did create this office, but they neglected to give it the powers that it was supposed to have. And so we're actually, you know, even today we're, we're still pushing on that to say the very least you can do is, you know, you've appointed somebody, you've created an office, give her the power to investigate, to subpoena witnesses and materials and say, you know, you have the documentation uh, you know, companies have documentation of what they're doing and they should be forced to produce it again so that we don't have to spend eight or 10 years in court getting the documentation that shows that the management knew what was going on and forcing them to respond. Got it. Got it. Thanks for detailing that. Um, so, yeah, I guess just to uh, wrap up, I would maybe um, if you could talk a bit about that process, because I've always found Mining Watch Canada has um, worked in this way where you are 
engaging. You know, I know that, for example, around the office for the ombudsman, um, mm-hmm. turning mining, uh, the operations of mining corporations, Canadian mining companies, um, you did get some support for that from different MPs from the NDP, I believe. Um, and um, also like you've been working for many years to do popular education on a grassroots level, like through online uh, re- outreach, mm-hmm. but also through events and speaking tours, for example, of uh, people from communities impacted by malpractices uh, in terms of the environment and human rights. So you're working on various fronts. Um, if you could just sort of share with yeah. us. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's, it's by necessity and, and also by choice because uh, you know we're a very small organization and so we don't have the capacity to go out to schools and community halls and church basements and and meet people and and bring them um you know bring them information bring them guest speakers bring them films and and things you know all all kinds of different approaches that that people take um but we do, yeah, as you say, we, we work with a lot of other organizations and, and it's the same with, with working with communities on the ground. We don't have the capacity to go and send investigative teams to document what's going on. You know, we, we, we do go and visit places, but we don't have that kind of capacity like a, you know, like a human rights watch does to go and interview hundreds of people and, and produce massive documentation. We rely on networks and partner organizations on the ground and, uh, you know, and, and building relationships and networks that allow us to share that information, you know, with confidence and, and, you know, knowing we know these people, we know what they're talking about. We know that they're, they're not making stuff up. Um, But it's really important to, you know, to bring those voices forward. And it, because that's really, I think, how humans understand the world is in conversation with each other. You know, we can do all of the documentation and analysis that we want, but to really have a a human understanding of what's going on, you need to talk to the people and having, you know, so bringing people from affected communities to talk to parliamentarians, um, to talk to the public, to, to visit people is really, you know, what makes, what makes an impact and what makes all of the, the documentation and the statistics real. So, you know, it yeah. gives it, gives it that impact. I know, you know, I've, I've seen this over and over again, you know, with parliamentary committees and so on, I can explain things all I want. And they kind of go like, okay, that's you, whatever. But if somebody says this happened to me, this happened to my family, this happened to my community and they, and they, they can present that it has, you know, a thousand times more impact. And that's, that's again, really, you know, and, and it's, it's those voices that, that we're really trying to, mm-hmm. to represent and, and to bring forward. Yeah. And I mean, what I really appreciate about Mining Watch Canada is the consistency too. I mean, it's been, uh, you mentioned 1999, I thought it was about 20 years. So that, that I, yes, that's 20 yep. years of consistent, work to communicate these issues um and that that's something that's also so great and important in terms of having a voice uh dedicated to these this this topic so thank you so much for your work jamie and for sharing uh your reflections and thoughts this morning oh and thank you for your work it's it's really important have a good day thanks you too that was an interview with jamie neen from mining watch canada um 
an organization, I think, that does really important work into documenting the details and specifics around injustices connected to um, mining corporations, Canadian mining corporations, both in regards to the environment and human rights globally. I'd really encourage people to check out the website. Again, it's miningwatch.ca. That's for Mining Watch Canada. And that's another uh, interview within our series um, in collaboration with the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute. I'm Stefan Christoph. It is the 2nd of March here in Montreal, and uh, this is Free City Radio. Uh, we uh, share a new podcast every uh, Tuesday. Um, so thanks for listening. If you like what you're hearing, I'd really encourage uh, people to Uh, Tell their friends, uh, encourage others to subscribe. You can subscribe to Free City Radio on Apple Podcasts. Uh, Give us a rating if you like what you're hearing. It helps, honestly. So I appreciate the support. I work on this podcast um, just at home as a volunteer. Um, So any support um, in terms of spreading the word helps because really what this podcast is about is uh, spreading the word about important projects and Uh, undertakings uh, in regards to activism uh, around the world, but also the intersections of art and activism. So I wanted to go to a piece of music. Uh, I've been thinking recently about um, remembering uh, pre-pandemic what nightlife was like. Um, I worked at the bar at Casa del Popolo uh, on St. Laurent Street here in Montreal for a long time um, in various roles. And um, I was listening to this track. Uh, It's from a mix that my friend Phil Moonshine made for Free City Radio. You can find it at soundcloud.com slash freecityradio. Just look for the mix by Phil Moonshine. Uh, I've been inviting artists and DJs and record labels to make mixes for uh, Free City Radio. So you can find them there. Um, So this is a track by the band Body of Light. And it's called Limits of Reason.
Body of Light with the track Limits of Reason. Here on Free City Radio, it is the 2nd of March. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, uh, Stefan Christoph. We broadcast uh, every week on Tuesdays. Uh, continuing on with the show, uh, I wanted to uh, feature an interview that I did. Uh, I was really inspired by this interview. Uh, it is um, with three participants from the First Peoples Post-Secondary Storytelling Exchange. Uh, a number of um, Indigenous filmmakers, educators, mentors have been working on this project. Um, I coordinated this interview with uh, Métis filmmaker Michelle Smith. Um, and uh, I also was able to speak with other participants in the project. They introduced themselves, so we'll just get to it. Uh, this is an interview on the First Peoples Post-Secondary Storytelling Exchange, Lifting Up Indigenous Voices, Narratives, and Stories. Tenshi Kiowal, Grand Marcy Stefan for having us on here, um, Michelle smith Dishnikashin, Machifnia, uh, Winnipeg Duchin, um, so I'm Métis. I come from Winnipeg. Um, I'm very happy to be here. Um, thank you for um, giving us a chance to talk about uh, this project, the First Peoples Post-Secondary Storytelling Exchange. Um, it started back in 2016, and it was actually my colleague who's an English faculty at Dawson College who started the project. Um, and unfortunately, she became ill um, a year into the project and had to leave. So I was asked to be the lead for the project. Um, I had originally started out doing the video and film part of it because that's you know my background, but um, we had been working closely because um, I was kind of new to the SESHAP system. I was working independently as a filmmaker before and as a Métis person, um, I, I was really quite taken aback at what I found to be really invisibility of Indigenous presence and voices uh, and culture in an education setting. So I was at Abbott and then I was working at Dawson and I, I was really struck by the fact that the largest Seychelles in Quebec um, had so little um, you know, information, uh, visual references, just mm -hmm. talk and discourse around Indigenous experiences and especially the experiences and um, important role that the original keepers of this land, the Haudenosaunee, have, have played. Um, so there was that. And then, you know, just working with students who were expressing different challenges they were having in education and, you know, just feeling, again, that invisibility and, um, you know, feeling sometimes culture shock or having to adapt to a, just a completely different way of doing things. And, and I've heard often that idea that um, students have to leave their identity at the door when they come into post-secondary. So that was really the motivation to um, hear what students are experiencing, what Indigenous post-secondary students are experiencing, mm -hmm. and ultimately what they want to see moving forward. How, um, what do they envision for um, educational futures, ultimately? Mm. Well, thanks for that, uh, Michelle, and to give us some background on the project. Um, in terms of representation and moving forward, um, Pasha, you're one of the participants and um, you worked on this beautiful piece uh, about your family's history and specifically your name. And um, I found the piece really honored uh, that whole importance of intergenerational respect and, and also um, 
looking back also at, at your own story and how you've, you're carrying that story uh, as an Indigenous person. Uh, also, just the film is just beautiful. Um, so shout out to all the people who worked on it. Um, maybe if you could talk a bit about that film and, and also what you um, have been um, feeling and thinking about this uh, project uh, that has been taking place, um, the First Peoples Post-Secondary Storytelling Exchange. Sure. Um, hi, uh, my name is Pasha. Um, I'm from Kujuak. I'm an Inuk from Kujuak and a Ganyankihaga from Genoagi. Uh, I've been part of the project since pretty much the beginning as a research assistant and a participant. Um, I shared my story really early on in the project. And I also got to make my own film, as you mentioned. Um, I really enjoyed the process of making the film. It honestly really helped with um, helping my confidence. It really helped with connecting me to um, very well-known Indigenous people within the community. And I feel like that's one of the biggest assets from, um, from this project. Um, I started off pretty much just sharing my story in the um, video uh, in my film. I, um, I had a really hard time choosing a topic and it was because of my conversation with Glenn that I was able to choose the topic of my name because we found that in Inuit culture, there are some things that we wanna highlight and my name was one of the ones that came up. So we decided to start working on making my film because there were so many different areas I wanted to cover in my life. Like I wanted to cover the me moving from Kujok to Montreal because that's a big change. Um, but I felt like that would have been a really hard one to do in the short period of time because we only had two weeks to make the film. Um, so um, after I decided the film topic, mm -hmm. I then took a lot of time to um, record my audio, which was really difficult because I stutter a lot and I, um, <laughs> I say um a lot and I didn't want that to be shown in my film. So I had to retry over and over again. And um, I forgot what the question was. I was just talking about my film. I'm really sorry. <laughs> oh, well, that's great. Um, and so you'd mentioned that uh, Inuk filmmaker, Glenn Gear was one of the people that was mentoring you. Um, so if, if you don't mind, um, could you just describe a bit your film uh, for people? I know that, and I'd really encourage people to check it out. It's just beautiful. Uh, and 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 your narrative and voiceover and your story uh, are super powerful. But just for people who haven't had a chance to see it, um, sure. My film is about my name. Um, I'm named after my grandmother Pasha, um, and it runs deeply in my family. So every branch of my family, there is someone named Pasha. So I have like five cousins with the name Pasha. Um, I also have a sister who shares the name with me. Um, so in my film, I talk about that, um, how it relates to my grandmother, um, how in Inuit culture, I don't actually explicitly say it um, in the film, um, that the, in Inuit culture, the name carries the spirit. Um, it's mostly when I talk about my film that you learn that, that little tidbit. Um, but um, yeah, in my film, you can find all my our artistic um, images. Mm -hmm. There's little boots that you see walking on on my um, picture when I was a kid. And there's also 
a scene with beads with my name written on it um, in Inutitu. And there were so many scenes. It took so long to make the film. Um, there was a lot of dedication put into it and there was a lot of help that I got while I was making my film. Um, what else is there? In yeah, the that film? scene with the, the beads and your name in Inuktitut is really beautiful. It must've taken a lot of tries uh, to, to get that together. Yeah, there, there was a few things I had to take out um, because you just saw my name so many different times. I tried different, um, I tried different formats of writing my name down and that one actually is the one that um, spoke to me because the little feet that are walking, you can actually see there's the same kind of uh, movement in the beads and I, I like that little artistic, artistic touch I put into it. Right on, right on. Thank you for sharing all that, Pasha. Um, and this is a conversation about a recently launched project called the First People's Post-Secondary Storytelling Exchange. Um, and we've been hearing from Pasha Partridge, one of the participants, uh, filmmaker and educator, Michelle Smith. And also Morgan Phillips has joined us, uh, who's one of the um, organizers and supporters of this project. Um, if you could share with us a little bit about why you were involved and why this initiative was important for you to support. Uh, so what's going on? Uh, my name is uh, Morgan Gahanduni Yujat. I mean, Morgan Gahanduni Phillips. I'm from the Ganyagahaga community of Gahanawage as well. Um, I think I was just finishing my PhD at McGill. I don't know, maybe Alex McCumber introduced me to the project at Dawson College. It sounded really interesting. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was right at the beginning. And uh, at first I was asked to lend a hand, like kind of like in, in an advisory uh, mm -hmm. um, role. And mm -hmm. so once I got to meet the team, Susan Briscoe and Michelle, and we just, we, we, we had this instant bond. It was just, it was just so weird. And so I, re I, I, I really got into the project. Next thing you know, I got hired as uh, the research coordinator and the rest is history. It's been like five years now and we don't, we, we don't want it to end. It's, 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 it's grown exponentially and uh, it's been just so exciting. It's been the best project that I've ever worked on. We, you know, and centered to the project was really uh, about relationship building, how we, we built how we empowered each other and how we really worked as a team and you know all these researchers that we got to meet and they were so honest and it's just been a fabulous project and I'm just so proud to be a part of it right on right on thank you morgan for sharing that i i found that the there's both the i mean i i appreciate what you're just saying about the relationship building and i noticed within the interview section of the project you hear people's stories and I could feel that there must have been a lot of trust that needed to be established for people to feel comfortable to share those stories. Yeah. And for, and you know, <clears throat> it's the first time that I was in a project involved with filmmaking. And mm -hmm. so um, we, we, we planned as a team, as we went along at, we said we were going to do some filming of the individual interviews. And, and as a team, we decided not to film the talking circles because during the talking circles, it was the, it was really about ceremony and mm -hmm. a lot of tears and a lot of uh, really intimate sharing, and so we chose not to film the talking circles. So so that was pretty interesting. So we have a set of data of all these 
great talking circles. And then we have another big set of data of uh, where we trained the researchers to uh, do films, uh, uh, film the interviews. And, and the one, one of the films that you mentioned, uh, Joy Deer, mm -hmm. um, that film, she was actually filmed in my home right here. And uh, she's from the community here. And I really like her story too. Yeah, that that film uh, is really beautiful in terms of Joy Deer's sharing. I, I hope people can take some time to check out all the different films because there's uh, honestly it's an overwhelming resource. I mean, in in a good way. There's just so much great material. Um, but yeah, Joy Deer's film talks to um, sort of the educational process, but also this effort to respect Indigenous culture um, within within that. Um, and I think Michelle, you know, you've been working on that theme for a long time, trying to bridge that, you know, that, that, that ter that territory, uh, and socially that often has involved a lot of violence, right. In terms of educational, uh, the imposition of educational frameworks that, I mean, we can look to many Examples, one, of course, is residential schools um, and this use of education actually as a, as a force of colonialism. But this project really is taking a completely different approach and centering Indigenous culture and experiences. Um, I, I, I'm, yeah, I'm wondering if you could expand a bit on, as both as a filmmaker, um, as an Indigenous Métis person. And, you know, I know that you've been thinking and working on these issues for a long time. I mean, I think that as much as things have changed in the last maybe decade, mm -hmm. um, there's still so far to go in education. And I think, you know, there really is a lot of continuity in terms of um, colonial policy in, in education and all levels of education. And, you know, I, and that's, and that's what we, we're seeing and hearing on a regular basis from many students, like, and in these stories, there's, there's so much, uh, you know, courage and strength and um, individuals talked about transformation and things that they've learned and how they've grown and how they've gotten to know themselves and see what they're capable of, um, say, coming down to post-secondary from, um, you know, the community in the North, for instance, mm. at the same time, the fact that, so many students have to endure such, um, you know, difficult experiences in the classroom, like being singled out, being expected to speak on behalf of everything Indigenous, if you're, uh, you know, if you self-identify as Indigenous. Just some of the policies that continue to create barriers um, that prevent Indigenous students from getting higher education and fulfilling their professional goals. Like, you know, right now um, at, so Seychelles, for instance, all students are required to pass two French classes, credited French classes. So students, say, who may come from the north, who have never done French in high school, are obliged to do those classes. So that means that you might do four, five, six, seven pre-credited French classes to be able to be eligible for those credited classes. So you could have done all of your, all of your requirements for your degree, yet French is still hanging over you as an obligation. Um, not to mention, you know, uh, Joyce's principal came out recently in response to the horrific death of Joyce Eshaquan. Um, and Joyce's principal is a proposal put forward by um, the Atikamek communities and Joyce Eshaquan's family 
to make change in social services and um, uh, the public sector in Quebec. And one of the things that they're asking for is that there be appropriate, you know, Indigenous-centered uh, perspectives in programs like policing, like social services, like the health sectors, um, because otherwise students are going through these programs and not having any greater understanding of where Indigenous peoples may be coming from and going out and working in these sectors. So we're also asking that for Indigenous students who want to study nursing, for instance, mm -hmm. going back to the French requirement, um, and this is in Joyce's principle as well, and it's also something that's outlined in the Vien Commission proposal, which I know I'm throwing out a lot of you know documents and things. We can come back to them after if we have time, but um, that these professional orders, Indigenous students should, sh we should find a way such that they are not required to do the French uh, exam in these professional orders to become, say, nurses or um, other uh, professionals in the social services or public health sectors. Because um, mm -hmm. uh, I hear about uh, instances in uh, hospitals, say in Nunavik or in Cree Territory, for instance, where many of the staff are from outside of the community. Mm -hmm. um, so the fact that there's this uh, barrier uh, preventing Indigenous trained uh, people from mm -hmm. working in these sectors, that's hugely problematic, mm -hmm. hugely problematic. So that's an example. I'm in what my quite long drawn out explanation there, but one example of a very concrete barrier that Indigenous students are facing that prevent them from working in the professions, not only that fulfill their own professional goals, but that can serve their communities in such huge ways. Um, you know, so these are things that, that continue and it's just, it's a continual struggle, you know, to work with administrations to try to, um, to, to try to make change to, to, to reach equity, you know, because oftentimes we hear this discourse around, oh, well, um, we have to be equitable. Uh, we can't uh, give certain groups uh, unfair advantages. Well, look at when you're coming into the system, um, say without certain prerequisites or uh, where you're 17 and you've left your family back in your community and you don't have access to a social support system. Um, you know, there are a number of things. If you're coming into a system already with barriers and with uh, things against you, then I think we need to do all that we can in the uh, education uh, institutions to support students to succeed. And that means making significant big changes. We can, things cannot be done in the same way, but they just can't. So there's that, there, there is, I really see that as a continuity with uh, colonial policies. And while residential schools are shut down, the fact that um, for students to be able to uh, do higher education have to go down south to um, institutions that are not necessarily welcoming, um, I find that uh, continuity. And, and one of the things that um, came out of this project and was a very clear call, particularly from um, students living in the North, to have post-secondary at home in their communities. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, so there are some initiatives moving forward in that, in that area. Um, and then lastly, um, an another thing I think that's really important to think about is what is education? What is the purpose of education? Um, in addition to um, obviously doing your training for a particular job, Mm -hmm. um, post-secondary is so much about um, uh, 
critical thinking and reflecting mm-hmm. on your position mm-hmm. in the world and what kind of a person are you going to be and how are you going to contribute to society and whatnot. And I think that we also really need to think about where our Indigenous knowledge is in post-secondary and really consider that um, right now we really see sort of a hierarchy of knowledges. Whereas if you get your diploma and you graduate, you know, okay, there, there's your success, you've done your post-secondary. What about all of the incredible skills and rich cultural practices and traditions and Indigenous knowledges that many of us are trying to learn now because so much has been taken away, right? So, I mean, it's not always the case, but um, I think it's, it's really important to consider and support um, Indigenous knowledges and learning in an Indigenous uh, way. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Students shouldn't have to choose between sort of a Western style post-secondary and learning their own culture. Thanks so much for highlighting specific um, proposals uh, around access to post-secondary education within Indigenous communities outside of the city, and also the barriers in terms of regulation um, that Indigenous students face in terms of accessing the public resources to be within certain professions to support their communities. Um, And uh, I think it's it's always really good to hear about specific critiques. Um, You know, you mentioned Joyce Ashikwan and her family's uh, sustained voice and to think about how these uh, moments are uh, taking place, like the death of Joyce and the justice for Joyce movement. It's not just a moment or a hashtag. There's a whole context around, around that. So uh, thanks for giving some body to that. And we'll hear now from Morgan Phillips of this project uh, who wanted to jump in. So please take it away, Morgan. Yeah, so just to, to add to what Michelle was saying uh, from, uh, from a research, research standpoint, from uh, um, doing research in a way um, like as, as Indigenous scholars and in academia. So what we, what we really try to support is uh, developing research projects around an indigenous an indigenous framework methodology I, I would say where we really look at the strength the strength like we use what we call a strength-based approach and, instead of a deficit so a lot of the stories that we collected we really looked at the positive things and so so what many students told us of all the supports that for example in the uh, different, uh, like at, at Dawson, at Concordia, at McGill, mm-hmm. at Abbott, the different university and the Aboriginal student resource centers that are there, where students uh, use this, this space, these important spaces where students can come together, like-minded people and share, share food and share ceremony and, and have a, 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 a home away from home, especially mm-hmm. what like Pasha said, coming from uh, uh, farther away communities and, and they get to know each other. So those those types of resource centers have to uh, continue and get mm-hmm. stronger and um, be implemented in all places where there, there isn't uh, Indigenous resource centers yet. Yeah, thanks so much for highlighting that, uh, Morgan. Um, that importance of an actual physical space uh, that is 
driven not from uh, just the administration of educational institutions, but actually involves Indigenous um, creators, uh, educators, um, and and all sorts of voices to actually shape those spaces that um, can become hopefully um, a point of transition away from the colonial frameworks of education that you've all described. Um, Pasha, you, your, your film, I think it speaks to both your story, but also the resurgence of a lot of um, expression of Indigenous cultures and the diversity of different experiences, not you know, uh, and Michelle had mentioned that there's often this idea that, you know, uh, one Indigenous voice or, or student can speak for all Indigenous people. I mean, it's, 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 um, it's something that you sort of see sometimes on mainstream media panels, but I really liked your film in the sense that it told your story and all the different films tell very different stories. Um, but one thing that is common between the films is the fact that they're uh, the experiences of different indigenous youth. So I was wondering if you if you could share a few thoughts about what it was like to connect with different indigenous youth and 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 to also see their work and how that um, was part of thinking about what you were going to do because I'm sure there's a lot of you know oh well maybe it should go this way or I had this idea and you know exchanging between the different participants. Um, when when we were all making our films, it was really nice to see the different directions everyone was going in. Um, we were all we were all choosing something that felt close to us, something that spoke to us, and it was really interesting to see the different directions that we all took. Um, one of my favorite films was actually a student that was showing his. Um, um, direction like his experience going from Genoagi to Dawson and I thought that was a really beautiful um, experience to share um, because you don't think about the difficulties that it takes to cross a bridge to get to school every day um, so it kind of educated me a little bit about the differences of um, different um, indigenous experiences um, I also grew up in Genoagi <coughs> from when I was 14 to 18. Uh, and one of my biggest difficulties was actually leaving the community because the, the bus routes are not, um, they, they only come every hour and um, the stops were in really weird places. So it was hard for me to get to. So I, I really understand the difficulty of um, going from Genoagi to Montreal, even though it's really close by. Mm -hmm. I feel like there should be better systems in place to help um, help students or people who work to come into the city because it's it's honestly quite difficult and I didn't know that until I saw the film of the other student mm. um, I believe the film is called beyond my front door correct me if I'm wrong um, it's a really great film and I think I think people should take the time to also look at that film wow great well um this is uh, really great to hear about uh, and to hear all your perspectives on this. Um, I really encourage people to uh, take the time and spend some time with this, this project, which um, was so, um, I'm sure it took, <laughs> I think you said five years. Um, so uh, that's a lot to, to, um, to um, 
to go through. And thank you for taking the time today. So the, the website is fppse.net. Um, and that all these um, different projects that were described are there. So fppsc.net. So that's the First Peoples Post-Secondary Storytelling Exchange. And I've been joined by filmmaker and educator uh, Michelle Smith, Morgan Phillips, educator um, and researcher on this project, and participant and filmmaker and um, uh, also, like Pasha, it was really great to hear you describe as an artist your, your film. So thank you. So um, artist uh, Pasha Partridge. So um, right on. And thank you so much for taking the time to speak this morning. You're welcome. Thanks so much, Stefan. Yeah, thank you for having me here. Thank you. That was an interview on the First Peoples Post-Secondary Storytelling Exchange. Thank you so much to uh, the participants and facilitators of that project for taking the time to speak on Free City Radio. Um, this has been the 31st edition of the podcast. We broadcast every Tuesday. Um, we share uh, the audio with the world every Tuesday. Uh, we also have a community radio show um, that's on Wednesdays uh, on CKUT uh, 90.3 FM in Montreal that I host. Uh, the podcast show uh, content's a little bit different, um, but always happy to share material with you here. Um, please subscribe if you haven't had the chance to do so. Um, you can find us on Apple Podcasts. Also give us a rating if you like what you hear. Um, I'm Stefan Kristoff, and you can reach me anytime at stefan.christoff at gmail.com. And my Twitter handle is Spirodon, S-P-I-R-O-D-O-N. Um, so you can connect with me there. Thanks for listening. We will be back next Tuesday with another podcast. I'm going to go out with a beautiful piece of music by an artist uh, out of Vancouver named Secret Pyramid.